not just because of Memorial Day and where it falls in our nation, but did, did you bring everything that was, that was acquired for this day? <laughs> That's, uh, you're like, okay, well, what was I supposed to bring? Uh, well, this is uh, Passover, or not Passover, Pentecost. And I'm uh, just curious, how many of you grew up uh, with Methodist background or Presbyterian or Catholic background? If you grew up in this way, just kind of raise your hand for a second so we can see. Okay, so uh, y'all knew what today was then, right? I, for us Baptist people who grew up Baptist, we know there's such a thing as Pentecost. We know it's in the Bible, but we have no idea when it is, uh, mainly because the uh, the Baptist churches, for the most part, uh, have rejected any kind of liturgical worship, um, as well as the uh, the readings uh, that's throughout the year that mark special days of the year, of which you know Easter, Christmas uh, comes from this. But uh, certainly, outside of those two days, Christmas and Easter, this is these are the next big days: uh, Ascension Sunday, this last Sunday. If you were here last Sunday, then you kind of had a clue uh, about what we're talking about th- today. Uh, and then uh, Pentecost uh, is this day. And, and so uh, I don't know if you, you know, we hear that name. We think in our thinking as believers of the New Testament, we think Holy Spirit and rightfully so. But there was such a thing as Pentecost before the uh, Holy Spirit came in Acts chapter 2. And I want to take some time the next few weeks talking about the Holy Spirit and uh, as is the time to do so. Next Sunday, we'll, we'll uh, talk about the graduates and uh, have some messages tailored for that. Uh, but uh, today, I want to talk a little bit about the historical event of Pentecost and how it has effect in our understanding today of the Holy Spirit and what God was saying and that the Holy Spirit came into the church on Pentecost. And, and in such, many scholars believe this is the beginning of the church as far as how we understand it with the advent of the Holy Spirit indwelling believers. So, you know, it was just a few weeks ago that we celebrated um, celebrated our church, Green Pines, and the anniversary of the birthday of this church. But in, in a lot of ways, this is really the marking of the beginning of the church. Uh, when the Spirit comes and indwells God's people, and thus making it a body unified in Christ through the Spirit. And uh, so we're going to talk about that, and, and to do so, we're going to go to Acts chapter 2, uh, Acts chapter 2, uh, to uh, bring us to the text where Pentecost first occurs. We looked last week at the ascension of Jesus Christ, and the ascension of Jesus Christ, why it was needed for Jesus to ascend up to be with the Father before the Holy Spirit comes a part of our life. And what was accomplished with the ascension of Jesus to the Father. And so uh, Jesus had told us that the kingdom would come, not marked by signs or geographical locations, but first it would be something internal. And then there would be a day that would be very sudden. What does that mean? Well, first, the Spirit of God comes into our lives and extends the kingdom of God the, the kingdom given by God the Father to God the Son, all nations, all powers being given to Jesus, and extends that authority through the Holy Spirit to us today. Okay? 
So for those of us who talk about, oh, I look forward to the Lord's return. I can't wait to get into heaven. But at the same time, we do not submit to the Spirit of God. Then we are going to be in for a very rude awakening. We want God's kingdom then, but we don't want God's kingdom now. All right. So that's why Jesus teaches us to pray. uh, Our Father which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Your kingdom come. Not just, Lord, return, but, Lord, reign in my life through the Spirit of God. Uh, so, uh, he told them all, he says, I want you to go into uh, Jerusalem, wait in Jerusalem until something very special happens. And, uh, and this is the, the marking of the Holy Spirit's coming. And so, I, you know, I found that uh, anytime you have a child, after having four of them, you think you get used to a child's coming into your home. But that's just not true. You never get used to a new child. It's not something where, okay, we know how this is going to happen. And, and you know the basics, but the, the force of it, uh, just the sheer force of the change in your life, you never get used to. It doesn't matter if you had two children or three children and uh, Rich, Rich is, I think he's out with one of the kids now. I could ask him. Uh, he's got a few more than me. And, and, and it's pretty much the same. It, it, it comes in and it just radically changes your life forever. <laughs> forever. And so what we've got here is the Holy Spirit. And if he's coming into our life. And I'm just going to present to you that it is so much more life-changing than even if you were to having a child in your life. Uh, And so let's look at this passage in Acts chapter 2, verse 1 through 4, as we read this together. Let's stand in honor of this being God's word. When the day of Pentecost arrived, interesting enough, the, the word used is actually the word fulfilled. When the day of Pentecost fulfilled, they were all together in one place. And suddenly there came from heaven... A sound like a mighty rushing wind. And it filled the entire house where they were sitting. Divided tongues as a fire appeared to them and rested on each of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. You may be seated. Of course, this is a lot more to this story. We're just talking about the initial aspect of this um, and, the, and the, the holiday of which this day uh, was celebrated on. Now, I want you to note, first of all, that Jesus himself told them in Acts chapter 1 as well as Luke 24 to wait. He said, I'm going to give you a life-changing purpose. You're going to go into all the nations. You're going to proclaim the things that you witnessed of me. You're going to, you're going to tell others about this. But don't do anything yet. You just pray. You go back to Jerusalem and wait. And so they're waiting on the Lord. And I think it's just important to note that the day of Pentecost is the day of God's choosing. All right? He didn't didn't give them a calendar. He said, just wait, and I'm going to do this. And it happens on God's choosing. So what day did he choose? I think it's terribly significant for us to see the day that God chooses for the Holy Spirit to come into the church and, and make it a church. And so let's look at this event, the Pentecost event. Now, 
the name Pentecost literally means 50. All right? 50 days or 50 weeks. Uh, it is a Greek term uh, referring to the Jewish holiday of Shavuot. All right? Shavuot is the Hebrew word which means weeks. Now, uh, the, you can find several passages that speak to this, and I encourage you to look these up on your own. I, I won't read all these to you, uh, but you see Leviticus 23, verse 15 through 22, Deuteronomy 16, 9 through 12, Numbers 28, 26 through 31, and Exodus 23, 16. All of these are various Old Testament passages that gives instructions concerning this uh, major holiday, this major feast day uh, for the Jews. Now, uh, I think the chief most meaning of this Pentecost of weeks, Shavuot, is referring to God's provision. One of the instructions given to these people was that uh, they were to take the first grains, the first wheat, and this is the time of the first harvest, and take that first bunch and use this as an offering to God. In fact, they would make uh, two loaves uh, that would be uh, made of these first wheat grains, and uh, this is, uh, if you think about subway uh, footlong, you're not even close. Um, but it gives you an idea. In fact, they're, they're about 10 inches wide. All right? That's almost footlong wide. All right? That's how wide they were. And then about 16 inches long uh, were the, the typical size loaves. So, I mean, you're not just talking about uh, just a little bit of bread. I mean, it's, it's more like your loaf of bread that you're bringing in. Uh, and so they, they have a couple of these that they would offer up to the Lord. And so as a symbol of God's provision in their life. And so we're going to give up an offering that represents God's provision. Now, I remember uh, when I went to college, we had some money saved up for us to provide for uh, college. And, and it was to pay for tuition and, and then some money on the side just so I could have some food. And so I I learned how to shop sort of <laughs> uh, I, I would grocery shop once a month and I would buy bread and cereal and milk and some fruit and that was it <laughs> I didn't I didn't eat like most folks eat. I, you know most folks have several things I'd eat have like one side and that would be my meal uh, I'd, I'd make some uh, biscuits and that would be my meal and so <laughs> uh, I, I didn't I had some health issues I think in college uh, but I, I would uh, I was really a cheapskate and uh, I just try to figure out what's the least amount of money I could spend, and and then when it got close to the end, I'd call up mom and dad and say, "Hey, mom, dad, uh, it's, it's getting a little low here, and we got tuition coming up," and and so I would wait because they had funds that we were saved up, and the funds would be transferred, and I would just get noticed. Maybe dad would call me and say, "Hey, okay, the funds are there," and then. There was a time of provision, all right? And so as, as a way of, for me just to remember what it was like to have some power or some, uh, some means given to me. And that was to always be done with gratitude to mom and dad. Thank you. I can now eat food. Uh, I am very much appreciative. And, and so that was the, the attitude that, we were, that I had. And so it's kind of the sense of God's provision in our life to acknowledge what God is doing. I don't know if you do that much, but just to understand that day in, day out, the things that come your way are not by accident. There is a hand of God at work. And you think, well, you know, I do a lot of work in my own pastor. I, I do this. But let me ask you, where do you get the ability to do this work? Where does this intellect come from? Where does this energy come from? Understand that everything is of the Lord. And so this is something that the Jews had a, a, a calendar 
that was to portray this, to help them understand that everything is coming from the Lord. And so this was the Pentecost, this uh, Shavuot, where they would come and to give this praise to the Lord uh, in providing these, uh, these loaves as well as they would produce fruit or present fruit. And then they would also present um, some uh, sacrifices. These are lambs, goats, that they were to give in a way of understanding that all that we have is tinged with sin and it must be sacrificed for. There must be someone to pay blood for this. And so this was a, a common occurrence. Now, this was perhaps even a greater attended feast in Jerusalem than even Passover. It was, a, it was a better weather. It was a celebrated event. And so this was large crowds that were coming into Jerusalem. This is where they were required to celebrate this. And so there, it's been estimated that it could be as many as a million people, a million pilgrims from all around the, the countryside, even the world, that would come to this area uh, for worship of the Lord, Jews from all over. Now, I want you to understand uh, that this is symbolic. When God chooses Pentecost to give His Holy Spirit, what do you think God is saying? This time that you remember God's provision, this time that you give thanksgiving, I'm just going to provide for you in a whole new way. In fact, I think about this in, in Acts chapter 2, verse 44 through 46, as, as we look down and to see the effect of what God's Spirit is doing in the churches. What's the effect? In Acts 2, 44 through 46, it says, They all who believed were together and had all things in common. They were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the needs to all as any had need. Day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in the homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts. The Spirit of God worked in believers' lives and helped them to become generous, provided for them. It had a very significant meaning with the Old Testament because part of the instruction with this, this uh, Shavuot, this Pentecost, is that the harvesters were instructed to lead gleanings in the fields for those who are poor, those who are strangers, and this would allow for them to have food. Remember the story of Ruth? All right, this is where Ruth comes in. Uh, she is uh, a widow, and they need to have food. And so she comes to Boaz's uh, fields where this was done. And so the story of Ruth would play into uh, the celebration of Pentecost, of Shavuot. And, and so this is the idea of God, even in this original holiday, saying we're to be generous we're to provide. And so when the Spirit of God comes into believer's life, with it comes this sense of generosity to say that God's given me a spirit of where He's providing for me, thereby I can provide for others around me. In Acts chapter 1, verse 4 through 9, this is where Jesus gives instructions to the early church. He says, He ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which He said, You heard from me. For John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. So when they come together, they ask him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? And he said to them, it's not for you to know times or seasons. The Father is fixed by his own authority. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you shall be witnesses in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. Here he is saying God's going to provide for you power to do what he's called you to do. 
Similar, Luke 24, verse 49 through 53. Behold, I am sending the promise of my Father upon you. But stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. And then he led them as far as Bethany and lifted up his hands. He blessed them. And while he blessed them, he parted from them and was carried up into heaven. And they worshipped him and returned to Jerusalem with great joy. And they were continually in the temple blessing God. And so, once again, clothed with power, God is saying, I'm going to give to you all that you need to do what I'm calling you to do. What's he calling them to do? To share what Jesus has done with them. Very simple. Go everywhere, and as you go, share with them what God has done. And the passage of, of the Great Commission, Matthew 28, 19, 20, he says this, All authority has been given to me. This is, this is Jesus being exalted up by the Father. He says, it's all been given to me. Therefore, go with the power of the Spirit. Now, here's the thing. We need to understand that life is more than just eating. All right? It's more than just eating, making sure our life is provided for in material means. He says, I want you to live more than just making sure you've got another breath. Live for, for more than just making sure your heart's going to beat again. Live for things that will last forever. And he gives to you the Spirit of God. Interesting, Jesus says, I am the bread of life. And then they were able to experience this life of Jesus only through the Spirit of God. So it's a time of very much of thanking the Lord for what's, what's going to happen. Now, in the Jewish tradition, they, uh, they had some interesting things they would do. Uh, they would often gather around the temple. And just think of a huge uh, facility, all right? And there would be these southern stairways where often they would gather around. And uh, you can imagine thousands upon thousands of people around. But in the morning of the, the Pentecost day, usually around, uh, around 9 in the morning, they would often read scriptures together. And there's Jewish tradition that tells us that they would read two passages. Exodus chapter 19 through 20 and Ezekiel chapter 1 through 2. Now, uh, in these passages... It, in Exodus 19 to 20 is the giving of the law on Mount Sinai. All right? The giving of the law on Mount Sinai. And then Ezekiel 1 and 2 is the passage where the prophet has what we call, what scholars call a theophany, which is simply uh, a visible uh, revelation of God's presence. All right? So when you hear that big word, use it in Scrabble or something. All right? Theophany. All right? It is a visible revelation. Uh, Revelation of God's presence. And so you see one example in Ezekiel 1 and 2. You see another one uh, in Isaiah chapter 4, or Isaiah chapter 6, rather. Um, and so in Ezekiel 1 and 2, they would read these two chapters uh, and see this vision of God. Now, I'm going to talk about both of these in just a little bit, but let's, Ezekiel 1 and 2 talks about God's presence. And so this would also represent the second major meaning of Pentecost. One, God's provision. Second, God's presence. And so, interesting, as you read Ezekiel, I want you to note verse 4. As I looked, behold, a stormy wind came out of the north, and a great cloud with brightness around it, and fire flashing forth continually, and in the midst of the fire, as it were, gleaming metal. So you, you get this, this, this vision of, of a stormy wind and fire. Jewish tradition tells us they would read this. So what happens on Pentecost? 
Well, did you read this? Suddenly came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind. And it filled the entire house where they were sitting. And divided tongues as of fire appeared to them and rested on each of them. You have these same images that you see in the Bible representing God's presence. The sounds of wind and fire. Now, for those of us who grew up in the South, uh, we've had probably an occasion to know what a great sound of wind sounds like. Right? Whether it's, uh, I remember hearing the, the tornadoes in 89 coming through Raleigh in our backyard and the woods behind us. And, and then the uh, hurricanes that would come through, Fran in 96 and others. Um, and, and I just, these stand out because I remember at night, you can't see anything, but you can hear. And what you hear is frightening. Whether it's the trees falling down to just this constant rushing sound against the house. Of course, it's been described as a train for those who uh, ever experienced a tornado. But you notice the sound is inside the house. <laughs> that's, that's pretty amazing. A sound inside the house, this, this mighty rushing sound. And then you've got this picture in verse 3 of a, of a flame. And first it says divided tongue. So it seems to, to make us understand that there was per first a great large flame of which divided out from it and rested upon each of the disciples in this room. And so what's this picture of? A flame that is united in the one fire, but yet given to each person. It is the picture of God's power, God's presence, that the Spirit of God rests on each one of us, but it is the same Spirit of God. This is why I can go to another country, I don't know their language But I know they're believers in Jesus Christ. And I know that they fight for the same things in their life. That they have hope and the same things that's in my life. That the things that they find strength from is from the same things that's in my life. And the things they wrestle with are the same things I wrestle with. And I can find common spirit even among people of different nations. Why? Because it's the same spirit. I've gone with some of our church members. We've gone to other places. We were in India and... We were in a church there, and we were watching the people come by. It was communion, which is always interesting in another country. And uh, we were watching them partake of communion, and, and uh, a couple of the guys that were with me said, Hey, look at that. And we started naming people from Green Pines. <laughs> Can you imagine? There's Dick right over there. Doesn't look anything like Dick. <laughs> but there's just a spirit that we recognize in that person that reminds us of people in our own church body. Do you know you can do that? Now, they're not exactly like them, but there's a, a spirit about them that's very similar to people you know. And that's, that's true the world over, wherever God's spirit's at. He, is, he comes from one spirit, one fire, one flame that's given on each person. All right? So this is something that comes from Acts chapter 2. It is the presence of God. And that you cannot miss what God is doing. The temple in that day and time was the place to go for God's presence. That's why they traveled there, all right? Uh, that's why million, uh, around a million people were there in Jerusalem, because in this temple represented God's presence. And it was often, in the Bible you see it, marked with the, the clouds of glory, the Shekinah glory that represented God's presence. And, and here you've got the temple that represents that. When Jesus dies on the cross, remember what happens when he dies on the cross? Something significant happens in the temple, according to Matthew. Matthew describes 
the temple veil, which is the, a barrier between the most holy place representing God's presence, where the Ark of the Covenant was to be, and the rest of the temple, that barrier was cut from the top to the bottom, representing God dividing up from the top to the bottom and giving access to his presence to all who will come to him through Jesus Christ. All right? So that's happened. And as disciples around the temple, somewhere, somewhere someone is working overtime to try to repair this veil that's happened inside the temple. All right? That's been done. So when the Spirit of God comes to the disciples, it is a way for the disciples to understand, and all those who watch, I don't have to go to a place anymore for God's presence. When we talk about God's building, all of the world belongs to God. Every building is God's. But in the Bible, when it marked off a special place for worship, it was the temple. And what God is saying is there's no need for a limitation on the worship of God. There's no need for a place anymore. God's temple is not in a place. God's temple is in a people. It's in a people. Sometimes, you know, every once in a while I come across someone and, and they, uh, they're believers and, and uh, they'll find out what I do and I'm a pastor and they say, oh, I shouldn't have said that from the pastor. And we'll joke, you know, joke about, we should, you know, are you lied to the preacher? <laughs> you know, um, or we'll do some activity and we may do it here. I think, well, we shouldn't do this. This is God's place. But let me ask you, is there any place that's not God's? And don't be so concerned that you are lying in front of me. You are the temple of God. You are lying before God's spirit. <laughs> that is so shallow if you're going to only try to act good in front of the pastor. God has called us to another type of living. Not one of image, but one of recognizing who you are in the spirit of God. That you are God's temple. That every day, not just the Sundays, but the Mondays and the Thursdays, they are also of God, and His Spirit is with you, and you're to go with Him, and He is to go with you. And so when we celebrate this Pentecost, and we think about this, it was in, in that day and time very much a part of that celebration. You're in the temple, this is where God's presence is, but after that day ends, that is no more, and they see for the very first time, God's presence is with people. And he's making them their home. This is what Peter explains to them. They're, they're, uh, they're wondering about this. When they, uh, the Spirit of God comes and does such with this obvious way of power that they are actually speaking a different language. And I believe that is what's happening. They're speaking in different languages. Uh, and, and people are understanding. Uh, there, there could have been even as many seven different la- 70 different languages all there. And, and, and they're understanding and, and the Bible tells us that 3,000 at that time make a, a decision before God and say, I will follow God. And they submit to the Lordship of Jesus Christ and, and come to Him through grace of Jesus Christ. At that time, who knows how many people are actually there. And they understand at that time, wow, I'm here at the temple. I'm getting this at the temple. 
But I'm walking away from the temple and God's spirit is still with me. They go and they leave Jerusalem and they realize God's spirit is still with me. And they go back to Ethiopia and all the other places around there, around the world. And they realize God's spirit is no longer just in Jerusalem, but it is all over this land, wherever God's people are. And I'm afraid we're just so used to that. We take it for granted. We don't understand the preciousness of that. But have you ever been scared to death? I was just this past week, I was um, in Ashborough in a uh, kind of a wooded area, mountainous, and I've been in meetings all day, and I was thinking, you know, this would be a great time. I get a little break. I'm going to ride a bicycle. And I rode a bicycle. And, um, and then as I was riding, I hear this, rumbling thunder i get on the bike anyway because i'm a guy i do stupid things like that and and i'm just riding around and then after a while i'm hearing the continual thunder um, and little things are popping my brain anytime you hear thunder you can be struck by lightning and then i'm thinking i'm surrounded by trees i'm up on a mountain and i don't think the little rubber on the bicycle is going to do me any good i'm starting to sprinkle and all while I'm, I'm biking, but there's a new sense that comes in my life of, I can get struck at any second. And I'm thinking, God, the only way I'm going to get back is your mercy. But you know, that's true all the time. Just sometimes it hits us a little bit more than others because we find ourselves doing things that most folks don't do. And we realize God's hand of protection. You understand, wherever you go, do you know the preciousness that God is there with you? His spirit is there with you? Here's a wonderful thought that has been brought to me that I've never forgotten. There's nothing, nothing demanded by God in my life that's not also first demanded on Christ in my life. Do you get that? There's nothing demanded on me in my life that's not first also demanded on Christ in my life. I was, um, we're celebrating our anniversary and uh, this past week, and it's 15 years, and I was just writing a, a card to my wife, and I was just thinking through what 15 years has been like, and, and uh, just the sheer realization, it has not been easy on her. Just, it hasn't. <laughs> And, uh, and I'm trying to figure out how, how can it become easier, you know, and it's, I think there's a light somewhere um, for it to be easier, but just your realization, and not just because we've got kids and, and all, not just because I'm a, I'm a pastor and the things that, that comes with that, but just because I'm me. I'm not easy to love. And I, I remember granddad saying something when his wife died, I said, like, well, that's it, <laughs> I'm not going to find anyone else that'll love me because I know how I am. You guys understand that? Yeah. <laughs> dig, dig does. <laughs> no, don't say that about me. You're saying that about yourself, right? <laughs> yeah. When we're honest, we say that and understand that about myself and ourselves. And I was just thinking about this thing that, that she's stuck with and loving me. And, and I had to love her. And I realized, you know, God, it seems more impossible today than it did 15 years ago for her to love me. 
and and she's just only now more aware of that. You know, the thing about dating, it's kind of like a used car salesman, you know. You don't really talk about all the quirks. You just overlook that. Let me tell you about the good things. That's, that's dating, okay. And so, the 15 years, that, that's been re- revealed. And, and I was just writing out this note, and I said, God, I, I, it's impossible of me. And it's impossible of her. But it is not impossible for you. Christ, live and love through me. Because I don't have it within me. And God, if I have any hope that she's going to love me, it's because I believe that Christ is working in her to help her love me. See, there's nothing demanded on me that's not also first demanded in Christ in me. When we're called to just do the normal things like loving someone that isn't so normal, having children, and not to mention the things where God's called us to do different things in, in, involving ministry and life, and we're thinking, God, I can't do that. Yes, that's the idea. Paul said it that God's strength was made perfect in our weakness to understand this. And, and so when Peter, you remember what Peter was doing before the resurrection? Peter had all the motivation. Jesus is saying, you know what, all, before this day's out, you know, you guys are going to leave me. And, and Peter had all this motivation. If everyone else fails, I'm not going to fail you, Jesus. And Jesus said, before the cock crows, you're going to deny me three times. Jesus said, your spirit is willing, but your flesh just so weak. That's the last time people see and hear about Peter. Some 53 days after that, Peter is in front of these crowds of people, thousands of people, and you see his sermon in Acts chapter 2. What happened? Christ happened through the Spirit of God. There's nothing demanded on Peter that's not also first demanded on Christ and Peter. We see what Peter's effort brings. But when we see Christ involved in Peter, then there is a difference. And this is God's presence. God's presence that is with us. In Ezekiel chapter 2, verse 1 through 5, he said to me, Son of man, stand on your feet and I will speak with you. And as he spoke to me, the Spirit entered into me and set me on my feet. And I heard him speaking to me. And he said to me, Son of man, I send you to the people of Israel, to nations of rebels who have rebelled against me. They and their fathers have transgressed against me to this very day. The descendants are also impudent and stubborn. And I send you to them and you shall say to them, Thus says the Lord God, and whether they hear or refuse to hear, for they are a rebellious house, they will know that a prophet has been among them. That is in the Old Testament. That is before the Spirit of God baptized his, his believers and entered into them. How much more today is he calling us out as Ezekiel's to say, understand, you're going to be speaking to people and they're not going to listen to you. They're not going to hear you because they're rebellious people. But let them know that God's Spirit has been among them, that God's sons and daughters have lived among them. That comes not by our strength, but by the strength of Christ. And so the Pentecost, the Jewish tradition, brought about God's provision. It was a reminder of God's presence. But also, it came to symbolize, in Jesus' day, God's law. God's law. I, I shared with you that it was a Jewish tradition 
that they would read not only from Ezekiel, but also Exodus. Exodus chapter 19 uh, and chapter 20. In this passage is where uh, God calls out Moses to Mount Sinai. All right? So if you remember the Passover, originally God called the people out of Egypt through miracles and sent them away. Now, the Bible says in Exodus chapter 19, 20, that in the third month, so, so that corresponds to what we typically know as this Pentecost time period, a Shavuot. So in the time that it's taken us to go from Easter to today is kind of the time that it's taken them, the Egypt or the Israelites, to go from Egypt to Mount Sinai, the place God promised to Moses that they would come to. And in that mountain, God calls out Moses and he gives to them the, the Ten Commandments, the, the law written on stone. Now, we know from this passage that as he comes down, the people are already in rebellion, worshiping idols. And Moses breaks the Ten Commandments, literally, throws them down, and judgment comes. 3,000 people die that day as they give the law. And so the Jews of this time in Jesus' day and before would celebrate God's provision for of the law at this time by reading Exodus 19 and 20. Whether or not this was this is a, a an advent of the Pharisees of the religious leaders and because it was a similar time period. In fact, the uh, uh, the Essenes of the Qumran would use a use this day uh, to celebrate a, a renewal of the covenant of the Old Testament. So here, Mount Sinai, the Old Covenant, and the New Testament Acts two, the Mountain of God, the Temple Mount, a new covenant comes. Both events occur on mountains known as the mountains of God. Both involve similar sounds and symbols, such as wind and fire and voices. You see this in Acts 19, that this, these physical effects occur on the mountain. Interesting, the Hebrew word for thunder means voices uh, that we see in Acts 19. And so both events involve the presence of God. In the first event, 3,000 people died because of their sin. In the New Testament account, 3,000 people believe when the Spirit of God comes. On Mount Sinai, God wrote His revelation on stone tablets. In the fulfillment of Pentecost, God wrote His law on people's hearts as He promised. Look at Jeremiah chapter 31, verse 31 to 34. Prophecy says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. Not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. But this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them, and I will write it on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother, saying, Know the Lord. For they shall all know me, for the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sin no more. This is a prophecy from Jeremiah, and we're seeing this being fulfilled in Acts chapter 2, where it's no longer just externally, where God says, do this, but now 
it's coming up out of our heart that we want to do this. It's amazing to me as I'm parenting how dad's and mom's words never leave me. I think about that often. I cannot, I cannot leave food on my plate without hearing my mom's words. Clean your plate. And I may not clean my plate, but it didn't happen without me remembering my mom. And I'm just like, I'm going to violate you, mom. This is, I'm going to violate this instruction. All right? But it's still there. I think about this with my car. Every week, I clean dad's car. And I would always do it without soap. Because that's what dad did. Because he said it would take off the wax. So you know what I do when I wash my car? I don't use soap. I just, I'm like, what a waste. I'm not going to spend the money on that. It's going to mess up my wax. I may not have any wax left on my car, but I still won't use soap. Why? It's just ingrained within me now. That even if I was to wash my car with soap, I'm still going to do it crossing dad's instruction that's in my own heart and mind. When my children lie to me, I hear dad's voice. You intentionally lied. I can feel I start shivering and feel with the effects of what's going to happen. And it's funny because now even the words that I say as I talk to my parent, I talk to my children, I feel like dad. Sometimes when I'm preaching, I feel like dad. Just because of the effect of having him in my life. All that is less compared to the influence of the Spirit of God that is not just surrounding us, but the Spirit of God that actually becomes part of our life. It is a force that changes our desires. I remember before I was a believer, I grew up around church, I knew the good things that I ought to do. And I would do them out of social pressure, out of family pressure, because I did not want to go through the effect, uh, the negative effects of, of, of going against those things. But it wasn't like my heart wanted to do that. I just want to be liked. There was no desire for these things. But when what really bothered me was when, as a teenager, I would hear folks who became believers and they talked about God changed their heart and changed their desires. And I thought, I don't know what that's like. I never experienced something changing my desires. All I know to do is act good. But I don't know how to be good. I don't know how to have good desires in my heart. And it is amazing when the Spirit of God has come into my life, I have seen this, and it's not just, some folks it's an instant thing, but for others it's a gradual process of God through His Spirit, through the Word, changing my desires so I I have a real disdain for things of my own selfishness. And it hurts my heart. But God's changing my heart so that I long to do those things that are loving to God and loving to others. The change of your heart. Who can change your heart? There's nothing externally can do. I mean, you could go to an apple tree and try to staple apples on that tree. That doesn't mean it's growing apples. 
So much of our church is so much like stapling good fruit on our life. And we're just going to add good because we know we ought to add good. But how is it coming from out of our heart? It comes when the Spirit of God changes our life. This began in Acts chapter 2. I mean, think about it. The disciples, they knew how to act good. I mean, they have been with Jesus. They've walked on water, literally, with Jesus. They've seen the resurrection. They've seen the ascension. They know these things. But Jesus said, that's not enough. It has to come from God working in your life. You just guys, you wait. Don't say a word. Wait and pray till the Spirit of God does this in your life. And so, 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 3-18. through 18, Paul writes and says, and, and shows you that you are a letter from Christ delivered by us, written not with ink, but with the Spirit of the living God, not on tablets of stone, but on tablets of human hearts. So get this. The Holy Spirit is the Spirit of the living God working in our life. When we have promptings in our life, and we have convictions from reading the Bible that says, you know, maybe I ought to be doing these things. And Well, that's kind of a crazy thing to do. That would cost me way too much if I did things like that. Understand that's God speaking to you. That's not just a crazy idea. Listen, I I use this as a filter. If I ever have an idea to do something loving towards someone else, that's God. I mean, that's not me. Really? When you're honest with yourself, understand, do I ever have an idea that's loving to someone else when I'm not trying to promote myself? So if I ever have a thought, an idea to do something like that, that must be God speaking. But understand, that is God speaking. That's not just a crazy idea. And so it's the spirit of the living God, not on tablets of stone, but on tablets of human hearts. Such is the confidence that we have through Christ toward God. Not that we're sufficient in ourselves to claim anything is coming from us, but our sufficiency is from God, who has made us competent to be ministers of a new covenant, not of the letter, but of the spirit. For letter, letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. So in other words, if we're always operating on this idea, we ought to do, we ought to, we ought to, we ought to. This is what good people ought to do. And when you know what good Christians are because they do these things, if we're operating by that alone, that is the law, and it will kill us. It will not give us life. That is why one of the things I'm teaching when folks join our church is that we're not going to give you these external things to make sure you do these to, to know that you're a good Christian. We want you to understand this by listening to the Spirit of God and obeying God's voice in your life. Done on the inside that flows outside. Verse 7, Now if the ministry of death carved in letters and stone came with such glory. Now what's this ministry of death? It's returning to the Old Testament. If it came in Exodus 19 and 20 carved in letters and stone, but yet it came with such glory that the Israelites could not gaze at Moses' face because of his glory. And that passage, Exodus 19 and 20, God's glory was, such, was there in such visible, contagious ways that when Moses came down, his face shone. And they had to put a veil over his face so that the Israelites could see him. So if that's the Old Testament, this ministry of death, how much more, verse 8, the ministry of the Spirit has even more glory. For if there is glory in the ministry of condemnation, the ministry of righteousness must far exceed in the glory. Indeed, in this case, what once had glory has come to have no glory at all. Because of the glory that surpasses it. The New Testament, the indwelling of the Spirit of God, is such a grand, glorious thing that the Old Testament seems as nothing in comparison. 
For if what was being brought to an end came with glory, much more will what is permanent have glory. Since we have such a hope, we are very bold. Not like Moses, who would put a veil over his face so the Israelites might not gaze at the outcome was being brought to an end. But their minds were hardened. For to this day, when they read the Old Covenant, that same veil remains unlifted. Because only through Christ it is taken away. How is it that someone becomes a follower of Jesus Christ? It is done when God removes the veil of their heart so they can understand. I've met some people who say, you know, I've got all these questions that need to be answered. And I can appreciate that. There's some things you need to understand. But you need to also understand that you will not have every question answered. And if you have to have every question answered, you will never believe. Because ultimately, you're not saved by reason. You're saved by faith. And there is a prayer that God will lift off the veil from your heart to help you understand. Yet to this day, whenever Moses read, a veil lies over the heart. But when one turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. So, okay, how is it someone becomes a believer? When God removes the veil, but notice what I just read in verse 16, but also when they turn to the Lord. It is done by an act of God, but it's also done by an act of a person together. How does it, how does it both happen at the same time? I don't know. But it does. A person turns to the Lord and says, Jesus, I want you. And at the same time, as they're turning to Jesus, say, I want you, I treasure you, I want what you can provide for me. At the same time, God lifts the veil of the heart to help him understand. Yes, to this day, whenever Moses read, a veil lies over the heart. But when one turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. Now, the Lord is the Spirit. And where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. Freedom to follow after God. Freedom to love God. Freedom to love others. And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed to the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. How do I change? How do I, as a follower of Jesus Christ, I, I know what God wants me to be through the Word of God. How do I change? How do I become like that when I know how my heart is? It just told me right here. I behold the glory of the Lord. And as I look into the glory, the uniqueness, the beauty, the character of Jesus Christ is revealed to me through his word. As I study this, as I look at this, I'm being transformed through the spirit of God. Transformed into the same image of what I am looking at. You all worship something. You worship what you treasure. You treasure what you look at. And what you look at, you become. We all worship something. We all worship. We worship that which we treasure. We treasure that which we look at. And what we look at, we become. Do you get that? When we are looking at Jesus, when we're beholding the glory when we treasure what we're looking at, when we worship that which we're treasuring, the Spirit of God comes and changes me to that which I'm looking at. For this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. Let me just tell you, without Pentecost, without the Spirit of God baptizing me, there is no Christ-likeness in me. There is no hope for me to have a changing, a transformation to take place, except God's Spirit working through His Word as I treasure who Christ is. So Jesus says, don't do anything. Don't go anywhere. Just pray. 
until you are clothed with power, until you are baptized in the Spirit, till the Spirit of God comes. That word baptized means to be immersed in the Spirit. The Spirit of God is immersed in you, and you are immersed in the Spirit. In the Spirit. Until that happens, because there is no Christ-likeness, there's no changing that's going to happen. Even if you spent three years with Jesus, saw his resurrection and ascension, even if you walked with him in the water, there is no transforming what's going to happen in your life until the Spirit of God is in your heart. And so, verse 2 of Acts 2, suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting. Divided tongues of fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit, and they probably were not even understanding all that was happening, but things were coming to them of what Jesus taught them, and they began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. So on this Pentecost Sunday, I think it's fitting for us, one, to thank God. Thank God for His provision. And the greatest thing He's provided for you is His Spirit in your life. The Spirit of God that communicates His presence with you. And the presence of God that puts the law in your heart, that changes your desires. You, you say, well, Pastor, um, if, if I, how do I know when I have God's Spirit? I mean, am I going to have, um, do I get the chills? Is that, is that a sign? I, I get emotional? Um, do I, I start speaking in tongues? Is that, is that, is that how? Are, are, can, can you see flames on my head? <laughs> is there something you can see? I'm sure these things, and some of them did happen in the day of Acts 2. And you see this happen in various other capacities, physical manifestations to let the Jews know when the Gentiles come into the scene, that changed things radically. You mean Gentiles can also become God's spirit? No way. And they couldn't believe it until they saw physical manifestations of God's spirit and they could recognize it. Wow, God even wants to be among the nations. But what happens... I don't doubt when the Spirit of God is in your life and you're filled with the Spirit. I mean, and that's a different thing than being baptized in the Spirit. It is a continual practice that God commands us to do. We'll be teaching that in weeks to come. And Acts, or Ephesians 5 does talk about things that will happen. And it's really that you start loving God. And you start loving others. 1 John 5 was written that we may know that you have eternal life and you see within it checkpoints of 1 John when you love the brothers, when you love God, when you see God's word being fulfilled in your life, sometimes it's emotional, but let me tell you this, every time it's by faith. Every time it's by trusting in God's word. God, I'm going to confess my sins before you. I know I've done wrong. God, help me to repent by your strength, but I'm going to believe your word, and I'm going to yield. I want nothing more than God's spirit in my life. I'm going to yield to that. And you take it by faith. There have been times in my life when I've said to God, God, I would love to know emotionally. I know what your word says. I believe it. 
But sometimes, God, my heart needs some kind of heart connection. I've prayed things like that. But I've always gone back to Philippians 4.19. It says, God supplies my needs according to his riches and glory through Christ Jesus. And I said to God, God, you know what I need. And if you don't provide emotional moments like that in my life, then I know I don't need it. But I will trust you by faith. But I've also seen God answer that prayer when there have been heart connections, emotional connections, where I knew the word of God, but God let it be known to me in a very special way. He is here. And he has called me. He has anointed me for a task. He's setting me apart, and he's trying to make me into, and and he will make me into his image. So all that to say, yes, 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 it can be emotional. It can be the chills. But listen, that's not the definition of all things. It is by faith, trusting in God's word, and asking God to examine your heart to make sure you're not lifting something else up above God's spirit in your life. To be filled with the spirit of God is to say, I'm full, God. I don't need anything else. I yield to you. At this time, I think it's fitting for us to pray.